Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia Apostle, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Oh, and I'm so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Welcome back, lovelies. I am here with Meg Elison, a fantastic author. And I want to, Meg, I don't, I think I mentioned this in the email, but I didn't tell you when we were just talking before. I first met you because you were doing a workshop for an amazing organization called Writing the Other. And I took a workshop with you and, oh, I forget the other person. Marianne Kirby. Yes, thank you, Marianne Kirby, about how to, I forget the official title, but basically how to not write stereotypical fat characters. And can I just say, I was so happy that you offered that class. And that might come into our conversation too, because I'm so sick of all the stereotypes about fat people, as I'm sure many people listening are as well. So yay for having a class out there. And it was such a great class. And there were a lot of straight-sized people in it that I think got to learn a lot about perhaps where they were mm, not portraying fatness the way that it is. So that's how I met you. And I've been following you ever since. And I just read your book in like 24 hours. Number one fan. I highly recommend it to everybody. But before I gush about that, um, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Meg Elison. I'm a, a science fiction horror writer. I'm also a cultural critic and feminist essayist. I am writing all the time. That is always my job. Uh, I live on the East Coast of the United States now. I recently, until recently, lived on the West Coast of the United States. So I have seen it all. And uh, I love teaching creative writing. I love teaching for writing the other. And uh, I have an absolutely fire Instagram with amazing fat fashion that I feel like I should talk about more often. Yes, we're absolutely going to talk about fashion because there's a photo recently with these wings behind you and this dress that, anyway, we are absolutely going to talk about that. (laughs) And what Meg did not say that I will do a little brag is Meg has won the Philip K. Dick and Locus Awards and uh, she's been a finalist for Hugo, Nebula, Sturgeon and Otherwise Awards too and then appeared in tons and tons of publications. And can I say my favorite part of your bio is that Elison is a high school dropout and graduate of UC Berkeley. I love that together. I really needed to see something like that when I was figuring out how to go to college as an older student. I really needed to hear from somebody who had dropped out and then figured out how to make their way back. So I tell it every chance I get. You can drop out, you can get your GED and your options do not shorten. They just keep getting bigger. Oh, I love that. That is really inspiring. I do think people need to hear that more. We don't have to follow this Oh, you know, kind of constructed step-by-step plan towards the white picket fence bullshit. So I love that. It doesn't work for most of us, especially not these days. So there there is another way besides going straight to college at 18 with your parents' money behind you. 
yep, yep. <laughs> so let's start with fatness. What's your relationship to the word fat, Meg? I really prefer the word fat. There are a lot of euphemisms that people try to use around me and around other fat people. I don't really love person of size. I don't love any of the cute ones like fluffy or Juno-esque or full figured or any of that. It makes sense when I'm shopping for clothes to say plus size. That's the like accepted liberal franca and that's okay. But when we're talking about people, fat is the right word. And it's also one of those words that once you've had it used against you enough times, learning how to use it for yourself is like making armor out of old swords. Oh, yes. It, the re- reclamation of the word fat is huge. It, um, Yeah, like I often felt when I started reclaiming it and actually saying it out loud that I was being deeply, deeply countercultural and rebellious because really, I was. Really transgressive, yeah. Right? And right. I love that feeling. For me, that's a real motivator. If I can transgress, (laughs) I will. And, you know, for other people, there's the freedom to just own the word. Absolutely. Yes. It's, it felt to me very similar to when I started calling myself queer or when I stopped being offended by words like dyke, like these words have power. It may as well be ours to wield. Right. How did it go with your loved ones, you know, friends and family that were really close? Because I know for me, at least this has been a real point of tension that they still struggle with. I don't struggle with it, but they do. So how did that go for you? Uh, Definitely a struggle. People perceive it as first and foremost an insult instead of like an accurate descriptor or just a word you decided to use for yourself. And then there's there's a self-authorizing piece of the word, like fat people are allowed to use it, but non-fat people feel like they might not be able to use it, like when like when men are afraid to say bitch. Yeah. So I've had to openly encourage people in my life to tell them like that is the word I prefer. If you mean fat, say fat, because watching someone struggle for the word that they want to politely use when they think fat is only an insult is so much more uncomfortable than just saying fat. <laughs> so I, I occasionally have to remind people, people who say things like, you're not fat, you're beautiful. Oh and my God. I'm fat and I'm beautiful. You're not mm-hmm. fat, you're so cool. And I'm fat and I'm very cool, very fat, very cool. And it helps them remember that these things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that is those two statements and of which there are many variations of that. It is so insulting and it is shocking to me how people don't see that that is a huge insult. Yeah, it really is. And you kind of have to swallow that insult in order to offer somebody education. You just have to say, I, I see how you think fat people are unattractive. So you think these are two mutually exclusive categories and you just have to move past it and say, yeah. you are perceiving me right now as both fat and beautiful. Get used to it. Right. <laughs> I love it. I love how straightforward you are, but I feel like this, you are well-practiced at this, Meg. <laughs> a long time. I've been, I've been fat since puberty, so I've had plenty of time to yeah. get good at this. Yeah. Did you accept your fat body at puberty? Absolutely not. No. Uh, I mean, I was, I was born in the eighties. So there is no decade in which the consumption of American media isn't absolutely brutal to the the mind of a fat person, especially a fat girl. But those were brutal decades. Um, I I learned that my body was unruly at best and a problem to be solved at worst. And, you know, I was uh, in school during the years when they were talking about the obesity epidemic and how bad it was for the country that all the kids were so fat and we were doing the 
presidential uh, fitness. God, that fucking thing. Mm-hmm. I, I one day we're all going to get together and we're going to pile up those boxes where they made you stretch over your feet and hit them. Oh all my God. And we're going to burn them and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> Let's arrange the event. I think that sounds really cathartic Love for a that. lot of people. <laughs> and I was also, I was brought up during a period of time when it was perfectly acceptable to put children on a diet when we were all eating like fat-free snack wells mm-hmm. and like diet right soda and lean cuisine and just that the diet food industry was this juggernaut in the 90s that p- people born now might not have any idea because their parents are trying to make them eat like actual food but we were raised on like space food like weird <laughs> food like <laughs> products yes yes it yes. was a, a brand of potato chips that made people shit their pants oh and olestra, olestra. Had that pump at olestra. <laughs> my friend i was in the states so i'm in canada now but i was in the states from when i was 12 to 17 so oh. i remember one of my friends who was bigger i don't i don't know if i would have used the word fat at that time although she would have perceived herself as fat. Her family thought sure. she was fat. Anyway, sure. um, the, that whole thing. And she, her her mom, I think, bought these chips and she shit herself all over the place. It was so terrible. The worst cramps. Oh, like, yeah. I remember, I think we were like 14, 15. And I was like 94, 95-ish, I think, when this was like the craze. And oh, like the stuff that we were subjected to because of the ways our bodies looked. And the, the unspoken part of that always was this, whatever the side effect is, whatever the shitting your pants sick mm-hmm. for a year, you know, hair falling out, teeth falling out, whatever the side effects are, they are preferable to being fat. Right. Worth it. Your life is inherently more miserable than one when you literally shit your pants while you walk <laughs> down the street. And that is mind boggling to me. Also, if you want to know more about Alestra, there is a great episode of the Maintenance Phase podcast oh, about it. They yes. do a whole deep dive. If you think, oh, yeah. stop, check it out. Yeah. That is one of my favorite podcasts. I recommend it. I've right. converted so many people to it. It really it helps people think about stuff they've never thought about before. Yes. Like what is the inherent value of thinness or how much do we owe other people a healthy body? Right. Well, and how much of fat phobia, anti-fatness has been constructed by insurance companies and pharmaceutical right. companies. I mean, out of capitalism out of racism. Yeah. Oh, brutal, brutal. Yeah. So you went through all of that in your teens. All of that. All of it. <laughs> and then? Uh, I came of age at a time when people still expected that I would join a gym, turn it all around, you know, find a good fat in person inside me. Oh yeah, yeah. Performing good fatness. Like I'm always trying to overcome this body, which is obviously a problem. That lasted a good long time. And then uh, when I was late teens or early 20s, my mom got gastric bypass surgery. Oh, interesting. Which is a common long-term solution for people who are having trouble with their body and want to fix it through drastic means. Yeah. It's also commonly prescribed as a solution to type 2 diabetes. And I watched her go through it and it was absolutely brutal. Yeah. I, I went to support group with her to listen to people talk about the ways they lost track of themselves, the incredible dysmorphia that set in, Ugh. the way that they had become suddenly visible in the dating world in a way that they had never been visible before and how it terrified them. I watched their marriages fall apart. I listened to them talk about vomiting constantly, shitting themselves constantly, all of their hair falling out, all their muscle tone gone. My mom yeah. had to sit down on the stairs and do them on her butt. She couldn't stand on a staircase. Oh. God. It is a brutal way to reorder your body and its ability to process food. Yeah. So going through that and going to those 
support groups and there's always a clothing exchange because people shed sizes so quickly and I was everybody's before size Mm. so I would go home with trash bags full of new clothes and more than one person would hand me this thing and say this was my favorite outfit I felt so powerful when I wore it I hate that I can't wear it anymore here it's yours and that really like that (sighs) stopped it for me the the idea that that was the alternative that that was really the only way out and it didn't look all that compelling <laughs> wow and just the the depth of self-loathing and the, the depth of self-abnegation and the the incredible length of sacrifice people would go to to just not be fat anymore yeah. that was the end of it for me yeah wow I'm so in awe that you saw that and you could like put that together with the higher level problem that it's not the individual bodies it's it right? It's the systemic, the systemic view of the body. And yeah. then from there, I started reading theory. I started reading, um, I, I read a bunch of fantastic books from like, like the end of diet culture to fearing the black body to, um, the body is not an apology, like all these radical, mm-hmm. like, uh, realignment books on, on the theory of the body that really helped, uh, solidify mm-hmm. my position. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, did that journey also connect into your journey around queerness? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all part of accepting yourself and realizing that this is the body you get. These are the attractions you have. That this is the personality you were born with and, and making peace with that and seeking to uncover your true self rather than trying to order yourself along the lines that have been prescribed to you by whoever. Yeah. And I, I knew I was queer from a very young age. Uh, a lot of my earliest sexual experiences, like little kids stuff or with other girls. So that was really a question of repressing it and then accepting it, which is the same thing that you do with fatness. You repress mm-hmm. the idea that you are a fat person. You think this is a temporary embarrassment of your true self. And then you come around to the idea that, nope, this is who you are. This is the life you are living. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, Wow. Wow, such such a journey. I think there's so many people listening who would relate to that. Absolutely. I, I think I am in, in a lot of ways typical of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would say the same for me as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm really curious as well about how um as a writer and and you know, writer of both novels, essays, articles. So there is this business component to being a published writer. I'm wondering if being in a fat body has impacted that in any way, because we know statistically, I think I read something recently where, you know, in a classic, let's just say corporate culture, uh, fat people get paid something like 45,000 less than the thinnest bodied person in the office, which is mind boggling to me to say nothing of other identities that might be held by various right, people right. too. So you're also more likely to be underpaid if you're a person of color, if right. you're a woman, if you're visibly queer, if you're obviously trans, like all of those are reasons that yeah. people will bar you from the money room. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I derive the majority of my support at this point from being a writer. My sixth book just came out. Like I'm a pro in every way you could measure that which in the United States means barely surviving, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still really proud of it. It's hard to make a living and it's a hard business. So for most of my career, I've had a day job and I could tell in my day jobs that my body's a problem. I, I worked in a tech office in San Francisco. Oh no. 
I was by far the fattest person in the building and it was obvious to me that that was an issue and like the, the worst kind of things like you know people have their their talk around the lunch table and you're just trying to get a break and you're just trying to like build some camaraderie with people and they they want to deliver a monologue to you about the glycemic index of white rice or like you know you try to fit in you try to bring a salad and you try to act like you give a damn and after about six months I, I literally was just going to eat a bag of fun size Snickers while they stared at me like mm. just it just motivates me to to perversity because I couldn't take their implicit criticism of my body and their terror of their body becoming like mine. Yeah. Terror is the right word. Terror. terror. Yeah. So I, that gym also, that job also came with a gym membership and the gym was one of the most uncomfortable spaces I've ever been in in my life. Uh, It's like a, one of those very expensive high class gyms where everything is brand new and shining and the bodies in it are the product Mm-hmm. And I represent their worst fears. I represent mm. their abject failure. And I so didn't belong. It was like it was like an aquarium full of sardines and I'm an orca. Oh, that visual. I, my shadow falls over them as I pass. Mm-hmm. They know I can destroy them. They want to not look at me as I go above them. It's Yeah. It, it was really, truly awful. So one of the advantages about working for myself about being a writer is that I don't have to put up with any of that. (laughs) Like, of course I was underpaid in that job too, but like none of that is relevant. I do think that as a professional writer, there are people who take me less seriously because of it. If we meet Mm. in person, uh, who assume I can be gotten around or who assume I am sloppy or slower or less talented. And, uh, I feel like I can I can quickly correct those misconceptions. But one of the ways I've learned to get around it is be, by becoming an impeccable dresser because people expect fat folks to be poorly dressed, mostly because we have no option. But uh, a lot of thin people believe it is an expression of our lack of self-discipline or our lack of self-love. And if I show up looking like a goddamn princess every time, <laughs> they have to end with that. And it is, like everything else, a weapon. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I became very known for my jewelry. Um, (laughs) I was uh, all about big necklaces, chunky earrings, big statement pieces, big statement pieces. I was like, you know what? If I'm big, I'm just going to be big and fuck everyone else's thoughts. Like just going to own it. The impulse to make yourself smaller is so wrongheaded. And I I know that People feel it as pressure from the inside to take up less space, to make sure that they don't overfill their airplane seat, to pick daintier accessories, to pick smaller jewelry, to pick less of a statement, to always wear black. And I'm telling you right now, it doesn't help. It makes you more obvious. It sucks the power right out of you. Fill out the space and be as loud as you fucking can. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that what you just said around it sucks the power out of you. Because I think that's a huge part of this. Actually, that shift into being an empowered fat person as opposed to a performative good fat or a self-hating fat person. That shift changes everything. You just own who you are. There's a quote from Thomas Harris that I think about all the time, and it says, this is the worm that destroys you. It is the temptation (laughs) to agree with your critics in order to gain their approval. Oh, God. It's like such gaslighting. 
and we do it to ourselves. We just do it to ourselves over and over. I'm always, it's interesting, the, the um, example of working at, in San Fran and like this tech company, which of course San Fran is such a tech hub. And it's funny, I actually used to teach, mentor, and coach people to get into those tech companies because I have a business development and sales background. And oh, and I think one of the reasons I was able to do that job was that it was all over Zoom. You want to them in physical space. It is illegal to be fat on the street in San Francisco. Yeah. 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 Is that one of the reasons you moved? It definitely uh, doesn't hurt. It also is a punishingly expensive place to live with a radical separation between literal billionaires who have to step over dying heroin users in the street. Like, oh, it is a terrifying place where you see the absolute worst of human nature. Uh, and it's it's just it's dying under a crushing pile of money. And I loved it there for a lot of reasons. It's got an art scene and a, a cultural scene that cannot be beat, but it comes at an, uh, an inhumane cost. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So do you still have a day job or do you now get to support yourself through your writing? I have a different day job now, um, Mm -hmm. but it is at least a writing day job. So that's pretty good. That's good. uh, Writing is a cyclical business. You go through periods after a book comes out and when a book earns out and when you start making royalties and when royalties start to peter out. Mm. I would really love to never have a day job again. But, you know, this is America and rent is due on the first. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you were talking about this because, as I mentioned to you, the other work that I do is as a creative writing coach and facilitator for a really wonderful studio called Firefly. And this, uh, there's a lot of, we don't focus on publishing because, and we have lots of people that go on to publish, I will say, but we don't focus on that as like the goal of our programs because it is such a crushing, confusing, mostly inaccessible to a lot of people industry. Yeah, it is highly inaccessible. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, for most people, you don't make enough even as a pro to make a living. Like, I remember reading in Little Women what Joe March was making on her stories in, you know, 1865. (laughs) And uh, we are essentially publishing at the same rates that she oh, was. Oh, my gosh. Inflation. Like, she sells a story for $200. And I was like, I just sold a story for $200. Oh, and God. for her, that's more money than she'll see in a year. And for me, that's like my cell phone uh, bill. Right? Yeah. Wow. Very disheartening. So if most people who make a living as a writer, I've given this air quotes, is because they are supported by a spouse with a steady job with union health insurance with, or they are supported by money that they inherited or they're supported by money from some other source, actually making a living as an author, like making your house payment, having enough to live on, having enough to buy, pay for insurance is maybe 1% of writers. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. And I would say other creatives too. My partner is a children's book illustrator and has been a children's book illustrator for 12 years. And it is, yeah, he would, it takes both of us. Yeah. You know, he couldn't live fully off of what he makes and take, and you know, all these other, you know, all the house stuff and kids and, you know, it just grows from there. So yeah, we don't privilege creative arts. We don't. And it, does not have to be that way. There are plenty of examples of other countries where there are grants and support programs for people who make art. I was at Worldcon in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and I met a writer from Iceland who writes uh, mysteries and fantasies and science fiction. And uh, 
was supported by her government for being an author. All of us talked about how difficult it is to make it and how difficult it is to to dedicate the time that we need to to make art outside of you know childcare and, and trying to earn a wage. And she was like, Yeah, I don't have to do that because Iceland takes care of me. So that is that is an option. Wow. That is something that could happen. We could have a larger NEA, for example, that supported working artists, but we don't. Well, what's NEA? Sorry, the National Endowment for the Arts or one of the many grant programs at the federal and state and city level. Like these do exist, but there's so few and far between. Yeah. And there's so many applications. We have a Canadian version too that, yeah, the Arts Council. Um, Did you want to move to Iceland when you heard that? (laughs) (laughs) Icelandic sounds like a difficult language to master, but I tell you, if that's the deal, I would put up with long nights. (laughs) Um, So in your books, do you write fat characters yourself? How have you helped dealt with that as a writer? I love writing fat characters. I love writing fat characters who defy fat stereotypes. I love writing fat characters who have huge expansive personalities and are unapologetic and fill out space. The ones who have rich and involved sex lives, uh, fat characters who have particular physical feats that they're great at, who play sports. Uh, and then one of my best known works, uh, The Pill from a couple of years ago, that was what got me nominated for the Nebula and the Hugo. And I did lose, but it was maybe the most recognized thing I've ever written is about a, a world where there's a pill that, that solves fatness. It just, it fixes your body. And it goes from being the hottest new thing to an option that many people take to compulsory. Because if you can fix fatness, why wouldn't you? And I, I wrote the main character as a renegade who won't take the pill. Oh, okay. That is my next book I'm going to read. <laughs> I cannot wait to read that. I mean, obviously you're making a point with that novel. Yeah, obviously. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that it got that much recognition. Were you surprised? I, I almost feel surprised by that. Are you surprised? I was surprised. It's, I, I think of it as the fattest and angriest thing I've ever written. Yeah. And while that's true, people responded to it and not just fat people. Like I heard from a lot of people who are thin, who are average size, who are in many cases, like they, they possess the ideal body as dictated by our culture. And they tell me how deeply they felt that. Mm. That just amazes the hell out of me. I also frankly heard from a lot of fat people who are like, I love that story. And if the pill was real, I would take it. Right. Right. And I can never be upset with fat people who say that because we live in a world that it doesn't, is not designed for us. So why wouldn't we make our lives easier? I would, why wouldn't you do anything you could to make this easier? I, I don't judge anybody for those decisions. I've had, I've had friends come to me and basically apologize to me and saying, you know, I'm going to get bypass surgery or I'm going to, I'm going to seek out this remedy or that remedy. And I always tell them it is your body. You have to limit it. It is not my business. And I'm not telling you how to do that. You're not betraying me or other fat people by taking this course of action. You yeah. got to live your life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Um, So in the book that I read in like 24 hours, I was so lucky because I was at a friend's cottage. So I got to start it on like the Friday night, read for an hour or two. And then I just sat outside on the front porch in front of this beautiful lake and basically devoured your book, number one fan. It was, I was so hooked after the first chapter. It was such a perfect read because there was intrigue. I love the main character. Do you pronounce it Ellie? I say Eli. Eli. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was Ellie or Eli. I love, like a lot of queer women, I love a masculine diminutive of a feminine name. So her given name is Elizabeth and she goes by Eli. Eli. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Eli was, is, because I'll speak in the present tense about a work, um, is fantastic. 
complicated, neurotic. Like I just loved all, I loved being in Eli's mind so much as, um, did she go by she or they? She goes by she. She goes by she. Okay. As she navigates through the situation, I'm, I'm not going to like give anything away, but you know, at the end of the first chapter, and actually I think it's even on the back cover of the book, it is. Um, yeah. Eli gets uh, taken, kidnapped, and we don't know. We, the whole story is about like what's going on, why, and just the way you played with, um, ah, I feel like there were so many meta pieces to this book about the book industry, about fandom and the cult of celebrity and just, there was so much in it. I love, yeah, it was so good. I highly, highly recommend everyone read it. It was fantastic. Thank you for writing it. And it was funny. I was at this cottage and there were two other writing coaches with me and they were like, you just can't put it down. I'm like, I have to, I have to know, I have to get to the end. And I, I always feel like I'm holding the book up. Um, we were talking about the whole, I like to break the spines of books. I like my books that I have loved to look loved and well-worn and they were both horrified. So are you a spine breaker when you read? I'm, I'm worse than that. I'm a spine breaker. I'm a page folder. Oh, I fold pages too. I love it. I, I will write notes in the margin. I'll highlight things. I, I believe that a, a book is a physical object that contains the history of how it has been loved. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's bashed around in my backpack. I read it in the rain. I read it in the bathtub. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not the only one of its kind. It's not a fucking Gutenberg Bible. <laughs> it's a paperback <laughs> that you had a relationship with and it should look like it. Right. That's, you just worded that so much more beautifully than I have been able to, but that's exactly what I feel too. I love like my, oh my God, my copies of Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit are falling apart. They have been so well loved. You know, we've had a deep and long-term relationship. <laughs> I, I have several books that have been in my life for 20 years now that yeah. show the exact same kind of wear and tear. Yeah. Yeah. There's something just, oh, I love that. I love, I also love that about a physical book too. Oh, yes. So yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm also a Kindle reader. I'm an audio reader. Like I have no problem with other book formats, but a physical object should behave in the world like a physical object. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, fatness comes in a little bit in this book because um, Eli, there's a reference to Eli having, you know, like weight body changes and, and then the captor, has some thoughts about that. So that was an interesting thread that you built into this book. I imagine very purposefully. Very purposefully, yeah. I I cannot separate the idea of someone wanting you to lose weight or to change the shape of your body from control. Yes. There is no investment for another human being in how much weight you carry on your knees or how much your lower back hurts or how you fill out a pair of pants. None of that has anything to do with them. A person who has a vested interest in you gaining or losing weight or getting surgery or having a body differently is trying to control you. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Everything you say, Meg, I'm like, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> yes. What? Like said, um, amazing. Uh, so that feels like such a great place to talk about fashion. Yes. Uh, okay. So you said you adopted, you know, fashion as a way to counter fat stereotypes. So tell me a little more about that journey. And, and also too, because also, like you said, and this has been one of my biggest struggles as someone who likes to dress very whimsically, I cannot fucking find clothes. I can't. Everything I own has flowers 
because that is all Torrid prints. And in Canada, we don't have brick. We only have Torrid as a brick and mortar store for plus size. That's it. Uh, it's it's skulls or flowers. That is all I can wear. And that's not all I like, but that's all I can buy because it's the only thing that has color. Anyway, so I could bitch about this forever. So let me allow you to bitch about it. <laughs> That, that's actually a really common complaint in uh, circles where we discuss plus size fashion. Like I'm on a subreddit for plus size fashion. I'm on a couple of message boards and discords and we're all always sharing with each other. Like, where did you buy that? Where can I find this? Does anybody know where to get 5X tights? Like, yeah. And the, the information is so thin. Like if I see a person who is my size walking down the street, I can tell you at 10 paces where they bought everything they're wearing. Hundred percent. So few options. So yeah. there, there have been multiple times when I saw Melissa McCarthy on a red carpet, or yes. uh, Gabrielle Sidibe, or uh, uh, Adele for a while before mm-hmm. she made some changes, mm-hmm. and I could eyeball where even they, even an A-list celebrity with nearly unlimited resources, had bought everything they were wearing because there are so few places that will deign to dress a body that's over a size, say, eighteen. So. I knew what I was up against. I was uh, in the 90s in the United States. Uh, a teenage girl could go to Lane Bryant. Yes. You could buy clothes that fit, but you look like a 40-year-old HR manager. Yes, I remember. <laughs> I expanded in my teen years as much as possible. I had very little money. I grew up in poverty, and I worked in a pizza place from the time I was 14 on. So I did a lot of thrift shopping. And I learned how to adapt stuff that wasn't meant for me. I wore a lot of menswear. Oh, see, this is why I've never thrifted because I tried and there was nothing, but I didn't know I could hack it. So I learned a lot from doing that. I learned, first of all, that sizes mean absolutely nothing. I have dresses in my closet that say 5X. I have dresses that say 2X. I have dresses that say medium. I have dresses that say I'm a 28. I'm a 22. I'm a 24. I'm an 18. It's all lies. It's non-standardized. It means nothing. So I learned how to take my own measurements, figure out whether something would fit me, learn to have a very critical but generous eye with a piece of clothes and not to ask do I fit into this but will this fit me oh I love that can you just say that one more time (laughs) it is enormously important when when evaluating a piece of clothing you don't ask yourself can I fit into this you ask yourself can this fit me yeah it is clothes job to fit you it is never your job to fit into anything See, exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) So that experience and doing it with almost no money really taught me how to be scrappy and to develop my own style, which was outside of fashion, outside of beauty standards even, and just based on what makes me feel like me. And as I've gotten older, I've made more money and we've gained more resources in the larger plus size shopping community and, uh, and I've gained more resources personally. So most of my clothes at this point come from an outfit called Ishakti, which mm-hmm. is based in India. And they do custom sizing on dresses, blouses, skirts. They do custom jeans now, pants, slacks, outerwear. It has a really wonderful selection. It tends toward femme but it is highly customizable. You can change your neckline, your sleeve length, your pant length. You can tweak anything you want to tweak. You can change fabrics. So I, first of all, I always know any Shakti when I see it. Second of all, I only have clothes that were made for my body, which is an absolute revelation. Also, all of their clothes made for femmes have pockets. Yes. The stupidest political stance I've ever had to take, but I don't buy clothes without pockets anymore. (laughs) 
Well, and do you know the origin of why women's clothes don't have pockets? Have you I've heard, heard a couple of different versions, but uh, I know that the the idea that we do not need to carry wallets or keys or anything that signifies power or ownership seems pretty meaningful to many. Right. And the, the, the one I read too is because it's it was back in, I don't know, 50s or something when women's clothing got rid of pockets uh, because it's expected that your, you know, air quotes husband would be carrying all those things and you right. don't have to. <laughs> Just the most ridiculous thing that led to the revolution now of it has pockets i can't i mean uh, i have i'm wordless <laughs> i get complimented almost every day on something that i'm wearing which is also a fantastic way to live by the way yes <laughs> i always tell people like i am legally required to tell you this dress has pockets yes <laughs> and my pockets hold my wallet and my car keys and my full-size gigantic fucking cell phone like they're real pockets <laughs> So I, I spend a lot of my money there. I do a fair amount of shopping in the Loki, which I think is a pretty accessible uh, fashion brand to most people. There's also Universal Standard, which does not suit me in a style kind of way, but does mm -hmm. have sizing up to, I think, a 34 or 36, which is nearly unheard of in this market. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a, a fancy dress company called Selkie that I absolutely Ooh. love. It's big, dreamy, puffy, romantic <sighs> dresses. Oh, they yes. are showstoppers. My dress from the Hugos, the one with the giant gold wings behind me, yes. is a, that's a Selkie. I adore it. And their line goes up to 5X and they show it on 5X bodies. So I can actually look at a dress to know how it will fit me. This is the thing too, that I've noticed Tord has started doing because Tord is my go-to for everything. Um, really good for casual clothes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and they've started showing, you can click on, I'd like to see this in a 4X body. And that, but that's just recent. That's that, that, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe six months. It's, it's so upsetting to think that we've been shopping our whole lives without ever seeing ourselves represented because things mm -hmm. just fit differently. They're cut mm -hmm. differently, they're made yeah. differently if you can't see it on a plus size model. I also, one of the best things I ever did for myself was I started following people on Instagram who are shaped like me. Yes. It did so much for me. First of all, it helped me normalize myself to myself. It helped me to see their thousands of likes and comments and the people who couldn't get enough of them. That that did so much for me. And also, I follow people who I'm a fit match for. And I try to see what they're wearing. And I try to see if I can get it. And that, it feels like living in a different world than the one where I grew up looking at Adelia's catalog and being like, I guess I can buy these shoes. Right, right. Oh, I'm so inspired. I've, I've had the eShakti app for probably three, four years. And I, I go in and I look at it. And then I just, for some reason, the whole, I get intimidated. This is silly, but I get intimidated by like measuring, not for any shame reason, but I'm just like, am I measuring properly? And then do I, do, am I doing this right? And I don't know if it's returnable. And then of course, Canadian, you're paying us prices and then shipping charges. There's, it just suddenly becomes, even if I order online from Torrid, I still have to pay shipping costs and pay in us dollars. So there's suddenly this now, like the thing I wanted to buy is probably 50% more after I put in shipping costs and exchange rates. So that's why I literally only have flowered tops <laughs> from Torrid, but it's so boring and it's so not me. It's, it is entirely worth it to go through the process. If, if you have a hard time with your measurements and a lot of people do like numbers are really meaningful to a lot of fat people in get a friend who will help you take your measurements and write them down for you without saying the numbers out loud if you think that will hurt you. And even if you're not afraid of hearing the numbers, have somebody help you. Measuring your own body is a daunting task and it's really easy to make a mistake. And yeah, the process is intimidating because most of us have never 
been to a tailor's. Most of us have never had clothes made for us. Unless your weight significantly fluctuates, mine doesn't very much. Unless you have to change it every six months or so, you put those numbers in once and you're done. And the, the system retains it for you. So whenever you buy clothes, like I, I haven't looked at mine in years, actually. I've been ordering from them for like six years. And it's already in and it's a machine that knows exactly the shape of my body and spits out perfect clothes for it. Oh it, my, I can't even imagine, Meg. That is like revolutionary, like for my body. Honestly, it is completely revolutionary. It changes the way I see myself. It changes the way I hold myself. It very much changes the way people react to me. I cannot overstate its value. Wow. Do you, I wish you had an affiliate link. <laughs> I have an affiliate oh, link. Oh, you do? Oh my God, <laughs> send it to me. I'll include it in the show notes because I will send it to you. I have it sounds amazing. Largest referral in the world. Are you really? No joke. <gasps> okay. Me. Honestly, they should be paying me, but I'm getting a hell of a discount. So Amazing. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Well, and I feel like, I mean, for me, and I imagine for others as well, listening, like you've just opened, you've given me the courage to actually try this thing. Please try it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And definitely somebody to like, I'm going to make a note to myself. You got so it. My, me and anyone else, maybe we can get you to number one referral in the world. I'd be so happy to crack the top five. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see if we can help with that. Um, so what is your style? What have you, how has your style evolved? I really felt like a lot of avenues were barred to me because of my size. Like a, what I wanted my style to be, I, I want to look like a well-organized member so I want to say a royal family. I'm a socialist and I don't believe in the monarchy. Yeah. <laughs> I love when people ascribe regality to my bearing and to my clothes. Like I love when people walk past me and say queen. That's what I'm trying to protect. Yes. So I want to look like a modern and, and very collected member of a royal family. And you don't think of that as possible because, you know, you don't see fat royalty unless they are like a dying diabetic king in, in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so uh, I I often get compared to Snow White because of my color palette. So I am I am quite pale. I have dark hair and dark eyes, and I prefer real red lipstick. So what I like to say is uh, Snow White grew up, overthrew the evil queen, and instituted free education in her kingdom. <laughs> that's amazing, and that's your style. And you actually, yeah, like the, what a fun way to. Oh, that you get to occupy that and that you get to dress that you have found ways to see. Oh, I feel like I maybe need a consult with someone because I'm like, what is my style? I think I'm kind of quirky and whimsical, but I don't know. I think as a writer, it's really valuable to tell yourself a story and it doesn't have to be the same story every day. You can be a different character every day, but I love people who wake up in the morning and say, I want to look like a person who's secretly a mermaid and can never touch her toe to salt water again or her tail will come back. And then you can just manifest that through your outfit, through your accessories, Make up the entire narrative of how you dress. Live in your own personal fable. No one can stop you. Right? Oh my God, that is so good. All right, I think that might have to be a writing prompt in my classes this week. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, so good. Um, so Meg, I want to check in and touch into this idea of staying connected to joy, to fat joy, you know, this world is really harsh for fat folks. And how how do you stay connected to joy? How do you turn towards, orient towards being joyful when there's so much that is designed to make us not joyful? I find 
something every day that brings me joy in my body. And it can be a completely simple thing. Like I really like if I'm writing all day, I like getting up and having a dance break. Love it. it. It makes me feel in my body. It makes me feel rhythm in my body. It makes me feel graceful and sexy and you know, dancing mm-hmm. can't be beat. Right. I, Current favorite song. Oh, uh, uh, it's, it's not called break my soul by Beyonce. Is it? The name of the song has something, it's something else, but it's that. Nice. Okay. Uh, Unstoppable, that whole album is great oh. dance music, and, and she can always be counted on. All of Renaissance is fantastic. <clears throat> so dancing, definitely. Uh, you have to give yourself permission to use your body, maybe in ways that and no one has shown you how to use it. So I love watching fat people on YouTube who do yoga or who do modified stretching. I'm a stretcher. I love to stretch out my hips and my low back and I give myself space and time to do that. Not every day, like I should every day, but the the relief from it and the, the quality of rest and the quality of feeling like you value yourself in just stretching. Like you don't have to get your heart rate up and fucking whatever. That's a scam. But yeah. just stretching out your joints makes a huge difference. Well, and also with that, I just want to say what's so interesting about what you said too, is this idea of in a way that no one has ever shown you. We've been told or society has constructed this thing. Like you must hold it in, suck it in, cover it up. So I spent most of my life fully a hundred percent awareness on what angle is this person looking at my body and where, what do I need to shift in order to look more acceptable again, air quotes. And so when you're saying I'm stretching my body in a way that I've never seen people stretch their bodies, that permission is huge. The permission is really important and, and, and shedding the idea of an outside observer. No one is watching. You don't belong to anybody. You don't owe anybody anything shedding that idea that you are constantly being watched to see how correctly you perform having a body. Yeah. The amount of CPU that frees up in your brain, you're not running outdated background software. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Right. Stopping that and stopping calorie math were like, my brain was like, oh my God, I can do anything. <laughs> you're not concerned with how many calories are in a sink. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not doing calorie math, not uh, not worrying about what other people think when they're watching you eat. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, it, it brought back the ability to enjoy dinner. Yeah. Like, what if you just enjoyed the food that you were eating and felt how nice it was to have calories marching into your bloodstream? Right, and that's joyful too. The pleasure of the pleasure, pleasure, just in general pleasure. Honestly, it's all I'm after at this point. I can't verify anything else in life that's good except pleasure. So that's why I'm. I love that. I refuse to suffer anymore. I'm like, I will not suffer. I will no longer wear bras that hurt me. I will no longer go to places where I feel uncomfortable. Like I don't want to suffer anymore. Why? We're not doing that anymore. We're not wearing pinchy shoes. We're not going to restaurants that only have shitty little stools. We're not doing any of that anymore. So love that. And then uh, for those of us who are allosexual, I think it is very important to cultivate relationships with people who are attracted to you, not in spite of your body, yes, uh, but in it and with it. And I, I know that a lot of people struggle with feeling fetishized or feeling like the attraction to their body is in itself aberrant. And finding the mixture of that, finding the idea that someone who truly values you and loves you and loves your personality and loves being with you also really loves your body and loves how these things come together is enormously important to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, seeking out and cultivating those relationships has made a huge difference to how I see myself, how I value myself, and how I feel like I deserve affection and comfort and pleasure with the body of someone I love. Right. And that's that's that self-worthiness piece. 
that I am worthy. I'm worthy exactly as I am. Um, you said the term allosexual. Could you explain that one? Yes. Allosexual are those of us who experience sexual attraction and have a sexual identity, and it exists in contrast to the idea of asexuality. And I don't want to exclude asexuals. There are lots of ways to enjoy having a body, like eating carbonara and riding a bike are totally valid. But for those of us who like sex, I find that it's a very important part of accepting your body. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Those are all amazing ways to keep turning towards joy. They work for me every day. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you exude joy. I mean, I'm just, I'm watching you and there's like, like your face is glowing and you're so in it and present. And I kind of, I love that. And I think of it as a form of confrontation. I love that people who have never seen a happy, sexy, mm-hmm. very much in demand fat person look booked and busy and extremely fashionable. The fact that they have to be confronted with me feels yeah. delicious. I so agree. Yes. Oh, and it's that it's so interesting because that confrontation feeling it's I feel like so one of the things that I'm really struggling is, with is I've gotten much more vocal. I mean, I've created a whole podcast called Fat Joy. So I'm very vocal at this point about body liberation, fat liberation, fat joy is that I find especially the people close to me because they feel like they can say things are so confronted by the thought of a fat person being joyful, productive, healthy, very happy. Yes. Um, And there's something so confronting about that as if, well, I have to struggle and I think it's this feeling of like, I have to struggle and suffer. And what? She gets to eat whatever she wants. She gets to do whatever she wants. That's not fair. And then that's what causes. And I think it's largely unconscious. It is, I think, almost confrontation. Yeah. yeah. I, I think most people don't have any idea why they're unhappy. Yeah. And so they, they seize upon what looks like the simplest reason why, or maybe the one that their parents suggested was the reason why. And if they see someone who is also doing that in the wrong way and they're happy, it enrages them for reasons that they don't even understand. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember when Lindy West got to confront her worst troll on NPR and like they had that live conversation and he was able to verbalize it. He was able to say like, I couldn't understand how you were so fat and still so sure of yourself. And I, I asked myself, who the hell does she think she is? Right. How dare she? Yeah, that's not even the question. I know who the fuck I am. If you Mm -hmm. don't understand who the fuck you are, that is a you problem. That is a you problem. I know. I've basically had to stop connections with people in my life because I've tried to educate. I've tried to explain. And then at some point, it's like, I'm not doing this anymore. If you're not able to hear what I'm saying, if there is no empathy, which to me has taken on a new definition of empathy, which is believe my story that, you know, you don't have to have had experience with it, but believe what I say. If you can't do that and you're just going to argue back and say, prove to me that (laughs) diabetes and fatness aren't connected. I'm like, here are five articles and three maintenance phase, you know, podcast episodes and you're not going to listen to it and you're just going to like keep sending me bullshit. there's nothing I can do. And I've just, I've been like, I'm setting boundaries now, like harsh boundaries. Yeah. So I think of this, I've seen this so many times and I have so much empathy for people who are stuck on the other side of it because I know what they're feeling. I've been there. And I think of it as I'm on the outside of a door. I have exited the building and I am outside and I can hear you 
pushing against the door. I can hear you beating your head against the door. I can hear you screaming at me from the other side of the door that you want to know how to open it. And I have told you a hundred times, you put your hand on the knob, and you turn it, you put your hand on the knob and you turn it. I have given you the instructions. I cannot wait here all day. You're either going to learn how to turn the knob or you're not. Oh my God. You've just explained all my family dynamics. <laughs> yes. Yes. You put your hand on your knob, the knob. And if, if you're not going to do that, I'm not standing around all day. All the, all the frustration they're feeling, all the resentment, all the, all the, the, the feeling of, of they're dying to be outside. They really mm-hmm. want to be outside where you are, but they won't turn the knob. That's all real. And I, I have so much sympathy for how they're feeling, but yeah. I can fix it. Oh, you're a better person than I am. I'm just angry. <laughs> and you know what? There is joy in setting boundaries. I've really found a joy in, because it's me telling myself that I am worth yes. not having stress, not having to do the emotional labor of education. Like I am worth living a happy life free from all that fucking drama. If you walk away from the door, there's a Maserati in the parking lot. And right. And there's a whole open highway alongside the Pacific Ocean. And at the end of it, there's a lobster place and they're waiting for you. Oh, like, love it. Walk away from the door. Give yourself permission to walk away from the door and everything, the whole world is outside. Right. I am walking away and I'm stopping for a lobster roll. That <laughs> is the goal. That's what fat joy. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Meg, this has been (laughs) such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed this thoroughly and I cannot wait for everyone to, who doesn't know you, to follow you, to check out Ishakti. I'm going to put all the information in the show notes and um, this has been such a joy. It's been really great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. So I chose this poem for Meg's episode because it is filled with brilliance and wisdom and rebellion and power, just like Meg. It is called Pluto Shits on the Universe, and it's by the incredible Fatima Askar. Um, I'll also include a link to Fatima reading it live at a slam poetry event that you have to watch. (laughs) I cry and cheer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when I listen to, uh, well, and watch this video. It's it's incredible. So here it is. I'll try to do it justice. On February 7th, 1979, Pluto crossed over Neptune's orbit and became the eighth planet from the sun for 20 years. A study in 1988 determined that Pluto's path of orbit could never be accurately predicted. Labeled as chaotic, Pluto was later discredited from planet status in 2006. Today, I broke your solar system. Oops, my bad. Your graph said I was supposed to make a nice little loop around the sun. Nah, I chaos like a motherfucker. Ain't no one can chart me. 
all the other planets. They think I'm annoying. They think I'm an escaped moon running free. Fuck your moon. Fuck your solar system. Fuck your time. Your year? Your year ain't shit but a day to me. I could spend your whole year turning the winds in my bed, thinking about rings and how Jupiter should just pussy on up and marry me by now. Your day? That's an asswipe, a sniffle. Your whole day is barely the start of my sunset. My name means hell, bitch. I am hell, bitch. All the cold you have yet to feel. Chaos like a motherfucker. And you tried to order me. Called me ninth. Somewhere in the mess of graphs and math and compass, you tried to make me follow rules. Rules? Fuck your rules. Neptune, that bitch slow. And I deserve all the sun I can get and all the blue gold sky I want around me. It is February 7th, 1979, and my skin is more copper than any sky will ever be. More metal. Neptune is bitch sobbing in my rear view, and I got my running shoes on and all this sky that's all mine. Fuck your order. Fuck your time. I realigned the cosmos. I chaosed all the hell you have yet to feel. Now all your kids in the classrooms, they confused. All their clocks wrong. They don't even know what the fuck to do. They got to memorize new songs and shit. And the other planets, I fucked their orbits. I shook the sky. Chaos like a motherfucker. It is February 7th, 1978, 1979. The sky is blue gold, the freedom of possibility. Today, I broke your solar system. Oops, my bad. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on the website at www.fatjoy.life, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please don't forget to check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. Talk again soon. Bye.